Hello, this is Scott O'Neill, 25 years in the sports business, an executive that's happy and healthy and thriving, and you are listening to Follow Your Dreams podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Marty Strong. Marty is a former Navy SEAL and a combat veteran. He's going to talk with us today about what it's really like to be a Navy SEAL, the training that's involved, his combat missions, the myths and realities around SEAL Team 6, and the mission to get Osama bin Laden. My featured song in this episode, and I always feature a song of mine in every episode, and I try to make it relate somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this case, the song is called The Rescue, and it's from the Queen's Carnival album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this song? Well, the Navy SEALs are maybe the premier rescue team in the entire world. I thought it fit. So Marty Strong, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. How you doing, Robert? I am doing great. So you know what? It's very rare that I have a true killer on the show like you. I mean, I've read about the SEALs and, you know, I always had these questions about the SEALs and the whole thing. So the first question I had was, you always hear about SEAL Team 6. SEAL Team 6, a deadly, talented, and effective Tier 1 unit of the United States military. This unit performs complex, classified, and dangerous missions throughout the entire world. Okay, what happened to the other five? Oh, there's a lot more than five. <laughs> I know, but why always six do you hear about? If I'm on SEAL Team 5 or 4, I'm getting pissed off that it's always SEAL Team 6. I know. So, you, you know the movie um, Lone Survivor? Look that! Marcus, move! I think so. Yeah, very, very popular movie about the guys in Afghanistan that got trapped up on the, the mountaintop. And, oh, yeah. And... Uh, that was uh, a mini submarine SEAL team. That was SDV Team 1 out of Hawaii. So it kind of comes down to what the press and the media and Hollywood decides, you know, they want to label things or not. So, yeah, the, uh, the glory and the, the level of effort and all of that is spread pretty evenly across all the SEAL teams. Okay. But tell me, I'm really curious about it. Why do they talk about SEAL Team 6 all the time? What is it about that? Do they have a better PR agent? Is that it? I don't think they want any, none of the teams want a PR agent. I think it, it's one of those, like uh, Richard Morsenko, who uh, wrote a book in the, I think the late eighties called Rogue Warrior. Uh, he talked about in the latter part of his book, he's already had retired. He talked about how he founded SEAL Team 6 back in the, uh, the late seventies. And, you know, that kind of made it, you know, it, that put it in the, in the mind's eye of the media and everybody's kind of just locked into that. It's, it's like, I was just talking to somebody in the office today. You know, scenes in these movies where they show the SEAL team get ready to do a mission and they've got this beautiful mock-up 
of the complex, you know, right. it's like, like an architectural design <laughs> mini. And, and I, every time we see that, we laugh, but Hollywood's locked in to thinking that's the way we do it. And most of the time in my, my combat missions, the information changed at the last second. And I'd grab my guys in a parking lot, grab a bunch of rocks. And it's like playing pickup uh, football in your neighborhood. I mean, you, you rarely knew that much about the target. You rarely knew uh, much about the people you were going to go up against. So that's just one of those cliches like SEAL Team 6 that everybody fixates on. I mean, every team has got a specialty in some cases, but in the global war on terror, a lot of them all set their specialties aside and all focused on what we call the sandbox, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. So you're telling me that you didn't have Architectural Digest along with you when you did a raid, huh? Not from the, the Navy SEAL movie with Charlie Sheen it was the first time I saw that. I was at a at a family and uh, seal screening or initial screening before it hit the public, and uh, it was like we're watching a, a comedy movie. I mean, that was one of the funniest scenes in the movie to us. The, the idea we don't we didn't even get a building to rest in, let alone a building plus a special you know miniature set of buildings to plan against. Everything becomes a Hollywood movie, and then that alters the perception, right? It does, and I mean, I, I get it. I mean, Hollywood's got a, a reason to you know to do what they're doing. They're trying to make money, but when you turn flesh and blood human beings like seals and rangers and green berets, and you turn them into Marvel comic book heroes, you're actually making it, you're distorting the reality. It's much harder to be a regular human being and do all those things than it is to be a superhuman. So I think that distorts it a little bit. It's a lot tougher to execute seal missions. It's a lot tougher to do any special ops missions. They, they call them special ops because they're the, the missions that you can't drop a bomb on. From, from an airplane, or you can't send in a you know battalion of Marines to take out. So they're weird, Mission Impossible. You know, kind of combinations of lack of information, but something's critical and it has to be executed. And a lot of it's done on the fly. So that, that takes a lot more than superhuman skills. That just takes a lot of judgment and practice. I'm sure you're right. All right. I got to ask this question because, you know, this is a podcast called Follow Your Dream. So I asked some of my guests, what was your dream when you were young? I mean, was this your dream to become a SEAL? No, I, I didn't know what a SEAL was. It, actually, when I went to basic SEAL training, it was a mistake in my orders. I was actually supposed to go to the Mediterranean. And and they talked me into staying. So that's that's how little I knew. <laughs> so you went to the wrong place is what you told Right. Me. They, well, they sent me to the wrong place from just north of Chicago. They sent me to Coronado, California. And I guess I took some kind of a swim test during boot camp. Didn't realize they took my name and social security number. And they put me, it was a part of the SEAL thing. And uh, and then they talked me into it when I got there. So when, when I actually had the orders handed to me and read to me, I didn't know what they meant. I'd never heard of SEAL teams or underwater demolition teams. So when I was a kid, definitely didn't hear him. I knew it. I knew Richard Widmark in the movie The Frogman. You're a brave man, all of you are. You wouldn't be in this outfit. Nobody questions that. But your kind of bravery comes ten cents a dozen and isn't worth a hoot more when the chips are down. And the chips were down on that deal. But I didn't really equate that to, say, the Green Berets, which I thought 
were really cool. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret I wanted to be an architect, I wanted to be an artist, I wanted to be an archaeologist. My reading was almost all around ancient history, mostly ancient warfare, the Greeks and all the Greek heroes. I love that stuff. And, and then by the time I was 15 or 16, I wanted to be either a lead singer or a lead guitarist in a rock band, like every kid in those days. And I didn't get any of that. I ended up going into the Navy and in some weird way aligning with the things I like to read for fiction, for fun as a kid. So you're in the Navy. And you get these orders to go somewhere and you and they were the wrong orders or the wrong place. Yeah. And the next thing is you find yourself. Now you're part of the SEAL team. Is that kind of what happened? That's exactly it. Uh, I was about 125 pounds. And the guy who came out to talk to me was about five foot two uh, SEAL Master Chief with, with a huge rack of, of medals. And he said, well, come on back. And he looked at my orders. and He goes, yeah, you shouldn't be here. You, you just got. 17 weeks of training and something we're not even allowed to recruit from. Then he started asking me if I'd played sports, if coaches had yelled at me and punished me if we didn't move fast enough. He said, well, it's kind of like, that's what the instructors are like. And he talked me right into it. And since he was, you know, a small guy, I didn't even think about, it. I was going into something like, you know, an NFL team or something. I thought, Oh, yeah, I'll try it. And we started with 126 guys originally. Um, and we had 13 of the original 126 graduate. We had people that rolled in later on, but there were 13 out of that. So, so you were one of the 13, huh? Yeah, I was stunned all the wow. way through, all six months. <laughs> and what, what is the mission of the SEALs? Why don't you just tell everybody? Because I don't think everybody knows exactly what you guys do other than kill Osama bin Laden, which I want to congratulate you for. Yeah. Well, I'm reading a book right now by Bill Milligan, who's trying to capture the entire history of special operations, not just SEALs, but the Marines attempts at it, the Army's attempts at it, going back to the beginning of World War II. So it's interesting that the need for a small, specialized unit, small enough to sneak in, adaptable and agile enough in their, their mindset to not go by a football player or follow a, a very strict set of orders, to go in and do special things. Sometimes they're strategic in nature, and obviously the uh, Osama bin Laden raid was a strategic effort. But if you're going to go in and take out a major bridge, that might be an operational target that's critical to the advance of major forces, et cetera. And there's been units like the SEAL teams with different names and some in the Navy, even in World War II, just didn't, they just didn't call them SEALs. They call them scouts and raiders that have been doing the same kind of special small unit uh, role. They did it in Vietnam. Uh, it's easy to sneak around with seven guys. It's much harder to move around with 700 or, or 70. So in a jungle environment, it was an advantage, but it really comes down to the adaptability and the unique training that, that pulls together a very small team of like-minded, focused, essentially, you know, college-level athletes that are also very um, intellectually driven to try to find a solution, but also adaptable enough to throw the plan out, you know, at the drop of a hat and come up with a new plan, you know, right on, on site. So, so they let you improvise when you need to improvise, huh? That's, that's really the job. That's really the job. SEALs, I mean, bin Laden was in Pakistan. That's not near the ocean. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the deal? I mean, why did they use a SEAL team, which you assume 
is a Navy-related team. You're thinking ocean, water, underwater. I don't think there was any water anywhere near where bin Laden was. Why was it the SEALs were chosen? Well, for the same reason, a, a mini submarine team from Hawaii was on a mountaintop in the Hindu Kush in, uh, in the, the movie or the story about the lone survivor. It was all hands on deck. We needed everybody after 9-11. So every special operator, doesn't matter what service, in the reserves, National Guard, everybody ended up going either into Afghanistan initially or then again in Iraq or in combination of other places in Africa, the Philippines, et cetera. So there, it was, you know, we were thin, you know, the cupboard was thin. You can't just create these people out of whole cloth. You can't go into a high school and grab a hundred people and, you know, put a seal pin on their chest and say, go. It takes a long, a long time. It takes about, now it takes almost two years to train somebody up to where they're fully capable, but they call it consider combat capable. Probably about a million and a half at that point expanded. And then they're just brand new guys. So what you do is you, you carve up the turf. So you know, the green and the marine versions of SEALs, uh, they take, you know, a certain territory, the SEALs take a certain territory, et cetera. And for the war on terror, it wasn't about whether you were Army, Navy, Marine, Air Force, whatever. It was about, we don't have enough guys. Everybody's going to help wherever they can I help. See. I see. And so Afghanistan was kind of the SEALs area of responsibility. So they had the most experience operating there. And I think that's why they were chosen ultimately. Now, you had combat experience. So where was your combat experience? My combat experience was in Panama. 25 years ago, on December 20th, 1989, a force of about 26,000 American soldiers invaded Panama in Operation Just Cause. The invasion of Panama, both leading up to it and the invasion and then the aftermath, trying to chase bad guys to keep it from flaring back up again. That was my primary combat experience. I had 36 combat missions during seven months. Wow. And they, so it's a small group of guys, like seven-ish, something like that. You roll together, you're trained together. And yes. does everybody have a different function within the group or does everybody's function kind of overlap? Multiple functions. And that, I talk about it in the book, Be Nimble, because I didn't see this in the commercial side you know, of, of my experience in normal business enterprise, organizational enterprise. You know, to, me, to me, it made sense. You, you create bench strength by cross-training as many people as you can up to a very high standard if you can do it. That way, if somebody quits, gets hurt, gets sick, goes on vacation, the whole thing doesn't collapse. Next man up. <laughs> right. It's like the NFL strategy. So the, the idea in the SEAL teams was everybody's trained to be a leader tactically. Everybody's trained to be a medic. So we all go through medic training. We all Most of the guys that get shot um, in the teams are patched up and stabilized by somebody who's not a trained medic because oh. there's more non-medics than there are medics. And if you're sitting next to a guy who just got hit, you're on him, right? Everybody gets trained to operate radios. Everybody gets trained to, to um, direct airstrikes and direct naval gunfire and artillery fire. Everybody gets trained in every skill. Everybody gets trained in skydiving. Everybody gets trained in locking out of submarines. And everybody knows how to fight. Everybody knows the tactics, their weapons. There's probably 25 weapons all in that each person has to be an expert in and kind of like in kind of like a band there are certain weapons for certain jobs that, that make sense and there are certain weapons that don't make any sense and that's why it takes so long to get to the basic combat qualification because you have all that to go through also the physical training and then you have administrative tasks so there are people that become expert in kind of the business side of the logistics like you might be in charge of all the diving equipment and all the diving operations and somebody else is in charge of all the jump equipment, all the jumping operations. 
and somebody else is in charge of weapons and the demolitions and somebody else is in charge of intelligence. So while you're in training mode, they are the leaders setting up the training or coordinating with somebody that you're training with and, you know, helping to set the curriculum, the standards for execution, making sure the gear is there and works. And then once you get ready to start actually doing the, the training or the mission or the exercise, they roll over their seal again. So there's a lot of different hats, a lot. It's a, it's a mosaic of stuff that you have to, that you have to understand and be proficient in. Makes sense to me to do it that way. That's really cool. So I want to ask you, I mean, how does it feel? You were like a 007, okay? You were like a James Bond kind of figure, right? For the government. Bond. James Bond. I mean, you were, in a sense, licensed to kill if you had to. How did that make you feel? I don't, I guess we never really thought of it that way. Our mindset, if you want to, if you really want to kind of put it in a bumper sticker, most SEALs I've, I've known and met, when I was in, guys that were in Vietnam before me and, and the guys now, they see themselves as kind of warriors for good. They see that there's evil in the world. And if you've ever been overseas, it doesn't have to be a combat zone. You see a lot of evil. And so you start to get a real good sense that there's good and there's evil, and there's not as many people standing up to the evils or should be. And so you see the missions and you see the targets as that kind of white and, and black, you know, comparison and, and uh, contrast. You want to go do good things. You want to go save the person that's in trouble. You want to go and kill the bad guy if that's the mission or, or capture the bad guy. So he'll tell you where all the other bad guys are. So you can go kill them. You want to be the guy that you know, looks at the, the license plate and radios back. Yeah, that's the guy we've been looking for. And then you let somebody else drop the airstrike in. It's, it's a very um, visceral kind of feeling of, of uh, I guess, a warrior ethos that you're protecting the country, you're protecting each other, and what you're doing has got that higher noble uh, purpose. You never really think of it in just normal military terms, like let's just take a hill or, you know, you never think of it that way. So why did you leave? Oh, man, 20 years. So I did half of my time as a enlisted. I, I was a chief petty officer when I went to officer's candidate school. And the second 10, I was an officer. It's like uh, professional sports. You know, if you think about the NFL, and NFL is probably not a great comparison because you already been beat up in college ball. But were, were you the Tom Brady of the of the SEALs? Is that what you're saying? I, I was exactly like Tom Brady, just about half as tall. And I can't throw the ball half as far. <laughs> No, I wasn't. Every, everybody has kind of a thing that they're, they're strong suit. Mine ended up being planning. That's kind of how I ended up getting into the officer side of things because I, I was pretty good at it. I understood conceptually. I could kind of see the framework of things. I could sense the shortest distance between two points. And as an enlisted guy, I was contributing a lot to planning, helping the officers. And then when I became an officer, I was, I was good at it. So that was, I think, my standout feature, if anything else, everybody has to be good at everything to the high standard as a minimum. Right. But like the NFL, I walked in there and I was a whole person physically and, and psychologically within 10 years, I had multiple broken bones. I had a messed up back from a parachute accident. I had probably 150 stitches easy. I had frostbite toes and, and, and frostbite fingers. And you know, and I was, I wasn't the quote unquote college athlete profile that I was when I walked in. And when you start and when, every day you show up and say you're, you're 32 years old and some 23 year old kid comes running by you morning, sir. 
whoosh, takes off. And you're like, oh, <laughs> crap. So it's just like the NFL in that you start feeling yourself falling half a step behind. And at first, you could keep up by just pushing harder. It's not just a natural, you're not just doing it like breathing. But eventually, all the guys that get long in the tooth start to realize that they either have to pull themselves out and get a staff job or something to help in some other way, or it's time to move on. So what's the average life cycle of somebody? Did you overstay the, the average life cycle then? At the time I retired, it was kind of 50-50. About half of the people got out around 10 years and half the people stayed a full 20. But when 9-11 happened, they extended everybody, <laughs> said you can't retire. And they started pushing the people that were already in until we, you know, by uh, probably five or six years into the war after 9-11, you had guys that were hitting 30, 32 years. They used to be, you know, secretary of the Navy had to agree for anybody to go that long. Like the famous Rudy Bosch, every year he had to have the secretary of the Navy or chief of naval operations approve Rudy going one more year because it was really rare. But when the war hit, like I said, huge scarcity, supply, demand. So you couldn't get out even if you wanted to. No. And so I got out just before all this happened or just after all this, no, just before all this happened. And so in my time, um, I was one of the 50% that made it to the 20, the 20 year mark. Now, part of the reason was because I became an officer and officers only have a finite window where they're actually kind of operating on the ground tactically. And in the SEAL teams, it's about four years. After that, you start to shift up into leadership positions where you're guiding and, and overseeing more than you are, you know, kicking a door in with everybody else. And so the physical demands are less not in a, in a standard standpoint, you're still out there running and working out with everybody, but you're not on a mission and people see that you're not holding your own and you're not keeping up. And there, you know, there's obviously, you know, the 10% that at 25, 26 years in the teams, they're still, you know, still running circles around. Huh? Yeah. You know, there are guys like that really are, but um, yeah, I was beat up. I had, uh, you know, disability just from getting broken up a whole bunch. So. All right. Enough was enough. I guess that's the short answer. Yeah. All right. So you took your experience, you took your training and you kind of pivoted and tell us what you did at that point. So I went into um, investment management. I, uh, I had a undergraduate and a graduate degree in business and I decided I wanted to become an investment manager. I started with a company called Leg Mason Woodwalker um, in Baltimore. And after a couple of years, I went to United Bank of Switzerland. So all in, I did about seven and a half years as an investment advisor, high net worth clients, uh, managing money and, you know, about the furthest thing in the world from what I'd been doing before. But in a lot of ways, it turned out that I had such a great team, you know, corporate team behind as far as analytics and, and, uh, the, the ability to project and forecast and do, um, oh, I don't, you know, institutional, uh, planning and estate planning, all that. So what I ended up being as the quarterback, I ended up being kind of the trust relationship and the quarterback, the strategic partner for my clients. I would sit there kind of side by side with them and look at all the options, look at the world, look at the plan. So it really came back to planning again. I was good at planning. You were using your training from the SEALs in that context. Yes. When it was all said and done, within a year, I realized that was still my forte. And that's what I started to leverage. And that's when my business really started to take off. So I did that for seven and a half years. 9-11 happened right about that point. Um, I watched the planes hit the two towers, tried to see if I could get back in the Navy. I couldn't because of my disability. So you tried to get back in? Sure. I mean, I made calls and uh, 
not just the Navy, anybody that would they thought they could use me, uh, use my services. So that's just because, you know, anybody that's been in that kind of a job, so any special operator, when something like that happens, the bad guys just hit us. And I already told you what's, what's going on, right? Our core value system is we got to stop the bad guys. Right. We got to get the bad guys. And everybody I've ever talked to said, I felt like I needed to put my, you know, I, I felt like I needed to run to the closet and put my uniform back on. I mean, it's just, that's the Did impulse. Bring guys back in. Oh, absolutely. Oh, kinds of guys. I work. There's a guy that works for me right now who that's exactly what he did. Actually, I know another person that lives about three blocks from me right now. He did the same thing. So they left, they were out, 9-11 hits and they're back in. Yep. They came right back in, you know, actually went to the base, walked up to the door and said, how do I get back in? And, you know, they figured out a way, you know, to, to connect them with the right people. And they put their hand up, swore back in, boom, they're in. Not all of them were retired people. A lot of them had just gotten out at eight or 10 years. And, and yeah, they wanted back in the fight. They wanted to help. And um, a lot of them stayed like another 10 years. So, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Is there a strong camaraderie amongst the guys that served and maybe the women as well? I assume that there were women in the SEALs as well. Am I correct? Not as SEALs. There, The SEAL commands probably in, uh, gosh, probably around 1985, 86, we started to get people into our SEAL commands that were administrative people, legal people supply chain management people that they weren't seals. They didn't have to be seals before that, believe it or not, seals were trying to do that. It was kind of dumb, but, and so we started getting regular fleet sailors and men, women didn't matter. And, uh, and so at that point there were, there were women in seal commands, but they weren't commandos. They weren't going through buds. You know. So even today, are there no women that are operatives on the ground? As far as I know, no. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's very that's very un PC, you understand. But I'm I, I mean, there must be a reason for that. Yeah, there's a there's an actual law Congress passed. I guess I don't know when it was. But it was a long time ago that prohibited women from ground combat, and that's slowly been relaxed over the last 20, 30 years. And so you see them in the cockpit and fighter planes and bombers, and which is direct combat, as far as I'm concerned. Aren't there women in Iraq and Afghanistan? You know, amongst sure. the troops but mostly in support roles, um, a lot of law enforcement, like military police roles, but they've been, they've been going more and more starting at the end of desert storm. They started to get into infantry jobs and being in places where they're on the front lines. And as I'm sitting here, I couldn't tell you that there isn't, there aren't women in frontline combat units today, but they haven't really pushed it into the smaller elite units yet. They've, I think they've had a couple try to go through the Rangers and, at least one or two tried to go through SEAL training, but 75% of everybody that goes through SEAL training quits or gets dropped. And, it, and that's after, you know, if you start with uh, 120 say for a class, there's probably five or 600 that tried to get set up for a class date that didn't pass the screening to get a class date. So it's, a you know, the attrition of that 500 is, and it doesn't matter what gender or religion or color or anything else. It's, it's tough. Yeah. And I, I know I've, there are women that could get through buds. There are, there are CrossFit women, I'm sure, that could get through buds, you know, physically and mentally. It's just there would have to be enough of them that want to do it to go through the pipeline and, and come up with the same kind of 75-25 outcome. Well, listen, I give you credit because you got to the wrong place. You, you got the wrong address, and yet you got through this thing. You know, you were one of 13, you said, out of what, a couple of hundred that started out yeah, your training or something like yeah. that? That's amazing. I mean, this is, it's quite a story. You know, as civilians, we really don't know what happens except on the Hollywood level 
which is why I started off asking some of those silly questions, because, you know, look, that's everybody's impression of what the SEALs are all about. So it's really fascinating and interesting to hear from you who were in that position for as long as you were, what the story really was. And I only have one further thing to say, which is I hope you tell some of your neighbors now that you're a civilian about your training, because nobody wants to get into a fight with you. Okay. (laughs) With that kind of training that you've had, you're a dangerous guy. Danger is my middle name. Anyway, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, Marty. I really appreciate it. You've you've lifted up the curtain on so many things that I think certainly myself and my audience would not know about. And uh, thanks so much again for being on the show. We're going to listen now to the song that started out the podcast. It's my song called The Rescue. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.